Good morning, everybody. Uh, great to be with you all. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Malachi, Malachi chapter one. We're starting a new series in the book of Malachi. If you don't know where Malachi is, don't worry, I'm going to kind of give you instructions later. So if you don't know how to get there, that's fine. Before we dive into Malachi, though, let's pray. Ask God to bless our time together. Lord God, we thank you that you have made us children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have pulled us out of darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. We thank you that through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven of our sins. They have been washed away from us. Though our sins were like scarlet, you have made them white as snow. We thank you. We praise you. We offer you all glory and honor. And God, we come before you and we want to hear from you now. We want to hear from what you have to say in your scriptures, which you've given to us. Would you open our minds to understand them? And would you help us by your spirit to behold the wondrous things of your law? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I see a lot of new faces this morning, which is uh, really exciting. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Deer Creek, and I'm part of our pastoral and staff team. We have a little bit of a larger staff here. And if you don't know me, uh, I'm married. Uh, I'm married with my wife, Hannah, and we are coming up on our 11th year of marriage. So we're going to have our 11. Yeah, thank you. Uh, one person. Uh, We've been married now just short of 11 years. We have four kids, Eli, who's our oldest. He's eight years old. McLean, who is our oldest daughter. She is six years old. And then Jane and Annie, our twin three-year-olds. And I was reflecting on this the other day. It really is, though, as if we have triplets. Uh, that's because recently we bought a dog, which was <laughs> one of our bigger mistakes that we've made in our life. And a dog, no matter how well you've trained a dog, they actually always stay the equivalent of a three or four-year-old child, right? A dog, no matter how much you potty train it, they are only always kind of potty trained, right? Or no matter how much you think your dog is obedient and you discipline them and you take stuff away, there's still going to be a little bit of disobedience. So all that to say, we basically have triplets, Jane, Annie, and our dog, Lucy. Just pray for us. <laughs> Just pray for us. <laughs> uh, if this is your first Sunday here this morning... Uh, we're doing what we do every Sunday morning. We're not doing anything special. Uh, we're gathering together as we do on a week-in, week-out basis. We worship God together. We sing to God together. We pray to God together. And really, one of the central parts of our worship is we want to hear from God together. And in order to do that, it's not as if we, you know, turn down all the noise and we sit in stillness and silence and wait for God to speak in order to hear from him, we don't listen for some, you know, spiritual whisper or intuition or spiritual guidance in that way. No, we believe God has spoken already, that he's spoken to us fully and finally through the words of scripture. So one of the central parts of our worship is we do this. We gather together and we study through books of the Bible, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way section through section, verse by verse, chapter by chapter to the end of the book, hearing what God has to say. And this morning... We're going to start a new study in the Old Testament book of Malachi. And if you look at your Bible, if you have a Bible, and you were about, you know, just held it up like this, really the first three quarters of your Bible, that's the Old Testament. And so what you want to do to find Malachi is you go three quarters of the way through, open it up, and it's right in between the book of Zechariah, who is another Old Testament prophet, and the book of the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. 
And if you have it open in front of you, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, Malachi does not waste time or waste words. He dives right in and tells us what he's about, what he's about to do. He says he is delivering the oracle of the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord. Malachi is delivering an oracle. It's the Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word massa. And it means something heavy, something burdensome. You can think of a large stone that Malachi's carrying around because he has this burden for the people of God, for Israel. And what he's about to say, this oracle, is serious and has serious implications. And you have to realize Malachi is speaking to Israel around the year 450 BC. And he's speaking at a time that is pivotal in the life of Israel because just over 100 years earlier, about two generations before Malachi came onto the scene, the year 587, the people of God endured what was undoubtedly the most serious spiritual and national crisis that they had ever faced. In the year 587, Israel was one of the most dominant kingdoms in the ancient Near East, one of the most dominant empires. God, for hundreds upon hundreds of years, had put his hand of protection over Israel, protecting them from foreign enemies, foreign invaders. God had blessed Israel with wealth and prosperity. The people were, especially the kings, you know, lavished with God's blessing and fortune. God had cared for Israel, giving them kings to lead the people and priests to care for Israel. But over the course of several generations, Israel, the people of God, would repeatedly turn their backs against God. And the result of this was that their kings, these kings who were supposed to rule with justice and righteousness, these kings who were supposed to be a visible representation of God on earth to the nations and the people around them, these kings instead slowly and steadily became corrupt and evil, not ruling under God, but instead setting themselves up over and against God and trying to claim independence against God. That led the kingdom into collapse, into injustice rather than justice, wickedness rather than righteousness. And it wasn't just the kings either, it was the priests. These men who were called to lead the people of God spiritually, they became corrupt, corrupt as well. Instead of worshiping the God who created them, instead of worshiping the God who had saved them out of slavery in Egypt hundreds of years and generations before, instead of worshiping God who had protected them and blessed them, the priests instead began to worship false gods. They began to worship all the gods of the nations around them. Gods like Molech, gods like Baal, gods like Asherah. And it was because of all of this corruption, this once dominant kingdom, slowly and steadily became corrupt from the inside out. And God, who had once protected Israel and blessed Israel, began to remove his hand of blessing, began to remove the hedge of protection. And in the year 587, Israel endured their greatest national and spiritual crisis. In the year 587, God allowed the Babylonian Empire, ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar, to march south toward Jerusalem and allowed the Babylonians to destroy the city walls, 
to overtake the palace of King Jehoiakim, to burn the temple of God to the ground so it was nothing but dust and ashes, and to drag forcibly hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people into exile, dragging them 900 plus miles from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon in the northeast. And now here's Malachi. Malachi at this pivotal time, roughly a hundred years after this great national crisis, following generation after generation after generation of corruption, he's looking at the people of God delivering this oracle. They have returned from exile. And on the outside, Israel looks okay. On the outside, Israel looks as if they have at least spiritually started to gain traction again, and the corruption before 587 has sort of been stemmed. But outside, even though everything looks okay, they've started to rebuild the city walls, they've finished reconstruction of the temple, they've reinstated sacrifices for worship, and they've reestablished a priesthood. Here comes Malachi now, and he says, even from the outside you think you're okay, Malachi is going to come and he's going to deliver an oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. He's sent to deliver, and we're going to see this, he's sent to deliver these six oracles and say to the people of Israel, even though you look okay on the outside, inside or underneath the surface, there is corruption that plagued you from before 587. It is carried over even post-exile to you today. That same corruption lays within your own hearts. And in this first oracle, you can see it begins in verse 2. Malachi says something very simple, and it doesn't sound like it's this burdensome, heavy, serious message by the start of it. But look, verse 2, the first words that come out of Malachi's mouth, I have loved you, says the Lord. It's the beginning of his oracle. The first thing God tells his people through Malachi is this reminder of his love for Israel. And it's this declaration that really exposes the inner corruption to Israel. You can think of this statement by God, I love you, declares the Lord. God is kind of poking at their heart to expose what's really going on underneath the surface. My wife, Hannah, and I, we've been living in our house, and we live this way. We live just up north, about five minutes from here. And when we first moved into our house, we had a really great previous owner because they remodeled a lot of the houses or a lot of the bedrooms and a lot of the different rooms in the house, including one of our bathrooms. And one of these bathrooms had a really nice tub put in, you know, great new tile, great window, windows put in. But we found out very quickly that whoever installed the tub installed it wrong. So usually when you install a tub, there's two drains. There's the main drain where the water just typically goes down if you remove the plug. And then there's the overflow drain. And now, as you fill the water up in a tub, if the water goes into that overflow drain, it's supposed to drain out and just go and exit the house as normal. But whoever installed the bathtub, they didn't install plumbing to the overflow drain. So water would be filled up in the bathtub and it would spill out through the overthrow drain and it would seep under the subfloor, underneath the tub, down through the subfloor and come through in the ceiling in our garage. And we didn't realize that anything was going on. So one day I go out into my garage and I'm looking up at the ceiling. I'm like, well, it looks like it's kind of okay, but there's these little bubbles all over the drywall here. So what I did is I poke it. And as I did, months and months of pooled up water came rushing down on top of me, all because 
underneath, even though things looked okay, there was this corruption. This water pooling for months and months. And we have a lot of kids. We have four kids. We take a lot of baths. That's what God's doing here. He declares his love for Israel in order to expose, in order to kind of poke at what's really going on underneath the surface in the hearts and minds of his people. After all, you'd expect, wouldn't you? After God says, I have loved you, declares the Lord. The people of God, they'd respond by saying, we love you too, God. We love you. Thank you for bringing us back from exile. Thank you for restoring our homes, for our city. Thank you for everything you've done. But that's not what Israel says. No, God's declaration of love exposes this corruption and it exposes this deep cynicism that's going on underneath the surface toward God. Just look at their response again in verse 2. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? And that's how these people are asking this question. This isn't a, oh, gee, God, I didn't realize you loved us. Please recount all the ways that you do love us. Will you please remind us of that love for us? No, that's not what they're saying. No, their question is one of deep cynicism. How have you loved us? What do you mean you love us? In what way have you loved us, God? You don't really love us. Don't say that you do. To sympathize a little bit with Israel here and understand their cynicism, realize they have been bought back from exile. They have rebuilt the temple. They started to rebuild the city walls, but their circumstances are far from perfect. You, you can actually read about this in other Old Testament books of writers who were writing during the time of Malachi, writers like Nehemiah and Ezra. They write that, Throughout the time of Malachi, around 450 BC, Israel during this time had faced repeated years of drought over and over and over again. Years would go by and there would be little rain. Years would go by, the land would be tilled, crops would be, <laughs> crops would be planted. Crops would be planted, seeds would be sown, crops would fail because there's no moisture, no rain. They would try again the next year, same result. What's more, they were completely vulnerable. They only had about 50,000 people. And as they're trying to rebuild the city walls, we're told that the surrounding nations are trying to intimidate them and trying to force them to stop building the walls so that they could become vulnerable to invading armies. So years are going by and they're facing hunger, famine, pestilence, poverty. They're also facing fear of surrounding nations. So the people of Israel at this point, they're deeply cynical. They're saying, how have you loved us? How? What do you mean you love us? If you loved us, God, then why do our crops fail year after year after year? If you love us, why are we living in poverty? Why do we live in fear of the surrounding nations? Why are we suffering so much, God? You see, what they're doing is they're looking to their circumstances and they're saying, you love us, please. How have you loved us? How have you loved us, God? And in one sense, we can resonate with Israel because we're exactly the same way, aren't we? I mean, in fact, it's almost hardwired into us that we think of God's love based on our circumstances. So we're a lot like weather vanes. You know, whatever the way of cultural circumstances blow, wherever those winds are blowing, that kind of determines in our mind how much God loves us. So when the winds of circumstance blow in a good direction, when we get a raise, when our offer is accepted on a house, when our child gets into the school we want, when circumstances are good, of course God loves us. 
Look at how, look how much he loves us. But when circumstances start to blow in the other direction, when we're laid off and lose our job, when our health is in decline, when our children are struggling at school, and the list of bad circumstances go on and on and on, you have circumstances that you carry in with you this morning, bad circumstances, when our spouse is irritating us, when we fail a test or a class, when we get injured, when we run into financial trouble, when the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, when these bad circumstances happen, when these awful things happen, we're, we're tempted to ask, just like Israel, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? What do you mean you love us? Anybody else in here have circumstances that you're going through right now that have made you question God's love for you? I'd imagine you do. The Chiefs did just win the Super Bowl. Malachi, he, he's four words in. Four words into this oracle, his prophecy. I have loved you, says the Lord. And all of that corruption that was present before 587 starts to come back up underneath the surface. Even though things look good on the outside, no, underneath, in their heart of hearts, there's still this corruption, this cynicism, even to the point of doubting God's love for them. And notice, notice how God responds in verse 2. In verse 2, in response to Israel's cynicism, he begins, God does, to lay out evidence of just how much he's loved his people and has always loved his people. So you read verse 2, God says, how can you question my love for you? After all, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? You see, in order to give evidence of his love to Israel, he doesn't focus on their immediate circumstances. Instead, he brings them back before 587, before their dominance in the ancient Near East. He brings them back even before Israel's slavery in Egypt, and he brings them all the way back to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He brings them all the way back to the first book of the Bible in the book of Genesis. During that time, all of the world was corrupted by sin. All of the world was corrupted with an inner pollution of heart. In fact, you read in Genesis chapter 11, this is the story of the Tower of Babel. There came a time when all of humanity decided in rebellion against God that they were not going to live under God. Instead, they were going to try and rule themselves over against God. So they built this tower known as the Tower of Babel that was assigned to anybody who wanted to see it that we are independent of God. We don't need God. God, as far as we're concerned, is a far-off, aloof, distant deity. We can rule over ourselves. Every human being hadn't just turned their back against God politically, as in the instance of the Tower of Babel. We also know that all of them had turned their back against God spiritually. In fact, People throughout that time were worshiping things like the moon, the stars, the sun, and other planets. And it's out of this mass of corruption that God chooses one man. One man. His name was Abraham. He chooses this one man out of all this mass of corruption who himself is utterly corrupt. Abraham is just as corrupt. In fact, we know that Abraham was a part of a tribe, the tribe of Terah, that worshiped the moon. But God, in his love, chose one man to take him out of the world in his corruption and to demonstrate his covenant love to Abraham. In other words, God loved Abraham in a way that is completely unique and special from the rest of the world. God set his covenant love 
on Abraham. You can kind of think of this if you, if you think to your own life, if, you, if you're married, I think of myself. I love many people. I love my mom. I love my dad. I love my brothers, Jeff and Sean. I love my high school friends. I love my college friends. I even love some of you. And as much as I love all of those people generally, I have a special, unique, and altogether different kind of love for my wife, Hannah. That is a special kind of love that I have committed myself to her. I have chosen her. It's a kind of love that is reserved exclusively for her and no one else in all of creation. I sacrifice myself for Hannah as a result. I commit myself to Hannah. I make vows to Hannah. I would even die for Hannah. It's a special covenant love that I have for her. And that's how God loves Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God chose Abraham out of a mass of humanity. And he chose Abraham to love him with a special covenant love, making promises to Abraham that he did not make with anyone else in all humanity. He promised to bless Abraham while the rest of humanity remained under God's curse. He promised to forgive Abraham while the rest of humanity stood under the condemnation and guilt of sin. He promised to save Abraham from his own sinful corruption. In fact, he committed to Abraham to such an extent that he said this in Genesis 17, establishing his covenant love for Abraham. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. It's interesting, after Abraham receives these promises from God, this covenant with God, Abraham has two sons. The firstborn, his name is Ishmael, he's the oldest, and then Isaac, who's the youngest. And Ishmael, you have to realize, should have been the one who received this blessing from God. If the promises of God were going to transfer from Abraham to any one of his sons, it should have been Ishmael because he was the oldest, but that's not what God does. No, instead he chooses, he chooses to set his covenant love on Isaac over Ishmael. And then the same thing happens with Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the oldest, Jacob's the youngest, but God, again, does something unexpected. He loves, e he loves Jacob, the younger, also known as Israel, over Esau, the older, also known as Edom. See, God is sitting back through Malachi, and he's, he's saying and asking, wait, how can you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? I have chosen you, Jacob. I have chosen you, Israel, out of all of humanity, over against your very own brother Esau to bless you, to forgive you, to save you from your own sinful corruption, to establish my covenant with you and all of your descendants into eternity. What more evidence do you need that I love you? I have chosen you. And in fact, God says, not only that, just, just look, look at Edom, those descendants from Esau, Look at Edom and compare your fate to their fate. That'll give you all the evidence that you need of my love for you. And that's what God does. He says, look to Edom. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? 
Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Do you need more evidence of my love for you? Babylon marched against Jerusalem, marching south, burning it to the ground. But you have rebuilt, Israel. You've repaired your ruins. I brought you back to this city to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, because you are the object of my special covenant love. I am God to you and to your offspring forever. That's not the case with Edom. That's not the case with Edom. Look again at verse 3. Babylon, after they had conquered Jerusalem, they continued to move south into the area of Edom. And as they did move south of Jerusalem, they utterly decimated all of Edom, all of the cities of Edom. And God now says, verse 3, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I have laid the waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Edom is no more. No, all of their cities, whether they are Hebron, Hormah, Beersheba, Ziklag, Lachish, all of these cities which were south of Jerusalem, they have been laid waste. The only thing you can find there are wild desert dogs, wild jackals. They've been laid waste. Your exile, Israel, was temporary. That's not the case with Edom. Their punishment is permanent. In fact, it's eternal. Did you see what God said about Edom? He said it in verse 4. He said, very clearly, if Edom says we are shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. It's an eternal punishment. You see, that's the difference. God's covenant love for Israel has not saved them from hard or difficult circumstances. No, God never promised that. He never promised that he would save them from hard circumstances. No, instead, because of his covenant love, he has saved them from a permanent and eternal judgment that was demonstrated on Edom, that was demonstrated on Esau. After all, that's what God's covenant was always all about. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob it was a covenant where God promised forgiveness despite their ongoing sin. It was a covenant that promised blessing when in reality, because of their idolatry and worship of false gods and constantly turning their back against God, they deserved God's curse. It was a covenant that God would be their God forever, not like Edom and Esau who got cut off and did not receive God's blessing. Instead, they were cut off forever. Israel looked to their circumstances now and concluded, God must not love us, but God reminds him here, no, look back and look south. Look back, is Esau not Jacob's brother? And look south, just as I have saved you from the fate of Edom, that demonstrates my love for you. That's all the evidence that you need. We need this reminder just as much as Israel too. Especially if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, we're in the same covenant as Abraham. He has set his covenant love on us, and by faith in Jesus, we have been made children of God 
through faith and made children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. He has set that love on us. And it's easy, like Israel, to become cynical, to forget that his love, to forget his covenant, his covenant ratified by the blood of Jesus, to forget just what exactly he has saved us from. My family and I, every Sunday night, we, we do catechism in my house. And catechism, if you're not familiar with it, what, it's, what it is is, it's an adult with a child, and it's meant to teach children the basic truths of Christianity. So you ask your child a question, and they memorize answers and repeat them back to you. And one of the catechisms that we do is called the Heidelberg Catechism. It was written in the 16th century by this pastor whose name was Zacharias Ursinus. And it's striking, the language that's used in this catechism. Question four, what does God require from all of us? Answer number four, Jesus teaches that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and the second is like it. We should love our neighbor as ourself. On these two commandments hang all the scriptures. Question five, but can you live up to this perfectly? Answer, no. Because of my corrupt heart, I have a natural tendency to hate God and hate my neighbor, sinning against them both daily. And you continue on, question number 10, and the questions uh, get a little bit above the three or four-year-old level. Will God permit our corruption and sin to go unpunished? Answer, certainly not. God is terribly angry with the corruption we were born with, as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge, God will judge them both now and into eternity, having declared, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. My kids love catechism. That's what we've been saved from. That's what we deserve, just like Edom, just like Esau. We deserve the permanent and eternal wrath and judgment of God because of our corruption and sin. We deserve, verse 4, to be people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And you see this throughout the scriptures. You see this throughout, this thread of what sin has done to, to us and just the extent to which it has corrupted us and what we deserve because of it. it it's evident in the other Old Testament prophets, prophets like Nahum. Nahum, who writes, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and the Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. You see the same thing in Paul as well. Paul was one of the 
earliest followers of Jesus. He wrote a letter to a church in Rome writing, quote, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them through his invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Jesus also speaks of this wrath and this condemnation that we deserve because of our corruption. Even after those words of John 3.16, Jesus makes it clear. He says, whoever believes in the Son of Man, referring to himself, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That is what we deserve. Do you want evidence that God loves you? Don't look to your circumstances. No, Look back to God's covenant love. Look south. Look at what he has saved you from because of his covenant love. God has saved his people from his eternal and permanent judgment. Though we may be exiled, though we may suffer, though we may experience terrible circumstances in this life, God has saved us from being a people with whom he is angry forever. How can you say, how have you loved us? As I was reflecting on this passage this week, my mind went to Johnny Erickson Tata because I cannot think of a better modern example of someone who could be so cynical toward God, who had every right to be cynical and hate-filled toward God. If anybody had that right, it was Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny was a collegiate swimmer and a tennis player. She was even voted best athlete of her senior class when she graduated from high school. But one month after her high school graduation, her and her friends decided to go out on a lake day on the Chesapeake Bay. So they head out there and they're in these life rafts, kind of paddling and wading through the water. And one of them decides, let's dive off the rafts. So Johnny, being, you know, a great diver and a great swimmer, she decides that she's going to do an inward pike dive off her raft into the shallows of the Chesapeake. And she says, quote, in one of her books, quote, I had assumed I could pull out of the pike in time. But when my head crunched against the sandy bottom of the Chesapeake, immediately my arms and legs went limp. Then my friends pulled my paralyzed body onto the shore and I kept thinking to myself, what a stupid dive. Why did I do that? And for years, Johnny struggled. If you know her story, she struggled because she was questioning whether God even cared about her. She was questioning whether God even loved her, why God would allow something like this to happen to her. She traveled extensively trying to find doctors or people that could help. She traveled to various Christian faith healers who, lo and behold, she tried to be healed by them and no success. And this made her bitter and resentful and cynical as she came back home from all these healers in a wheelchair, still a quadriplegic. But years after questioning God's love for her, she had this breakthrough because of a conversation that she was having with one of her high school friends whose name was Steve. And she wrote that this breakthrough happened in this conversation. She recounts it in a personal memoir where she wrote, by God's grace, I came to realize 
that the core of Christ's plan was to rescue me from sin. My pain, my wheelchair, my broken heart were not his ultimate focus. True, he cares about those things, but they're merely symptoms of the real problem within me. God cares most not about making me comfortable, but about teaching me to hate my sin and to grow up spiritually to love him as he has loved me. In other words, God lets me continue to feel much of the sting of this world through suffering while he brings me into heaven. This constantly reminds me of what I am being delivered from, exposing sin for the corruption that it is. My wheelchair is the key to seeing all this happen. So here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I have been healed on the inside, healed from my sin and delivered from the judgment that I so rightly deserve. Israel, just like us, just like we're prone to do, they've been looking to their circumstances, drought, hunger, famine, pestilence, poverty. God says, no, look at Edom. Look at what I have saved you from. Unlike Edom, unlike Esau, I have loved you with a covenant love. What more evidence do you need? And look at how Malachi finishes this oracle. I love what he says in verse 5. He says, when you look back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when you look south to Edom, Malachi concludes by saying, when you look, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Israel looked south and saw the destruction, the judgment of Edom, the only thing they could conclude despite their circumstances. The only thing they can conclude that God was far greater and far more loving than they ever could have imagined. Their only response when they looked south would have been praise. Praise and blessing. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He has saved us from that punishment. And as followers of Jesus, we do the same thing. We are members of this covenant and recipients of these great promises, this covenant of grace. And when we look back, we see what Israel only saw in part. They saw the judgment and punishment of God on God's enemies. We look back and we see the judgment and punishment of God for our sins on his own beloved son, Jesus Christ. All the punishment, all the wrath, all the judgment that we deserve for our sins was laid upon Jesus Christ where the covenant love of God was displayed. Remember how unique a covenant love is? A covenant love says, I will die for you no matter what. And in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what we saw. In his crucifixion, the judgment and wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And his covenant love was displayed for sinners like us. How could you ever say, how have you loved us? Not when God has done that. I'm going to close here with the story. Many of you are probably familiar with it. It's the story of Horatio Spafford. I've mentioned it from up here before, but it bears repeating. Horatio was a devout Christian. He was also a wealthy businessman. He lived during the mid part of the 19th century. And he had accumulated all this wealth in Chicago. And he wanted to get away from the business for a little while. So he decided he and his family, they were going to go on a vacation somewhere in England. But as they were about to go on vacation, all of a sudden there was the great Chicago fire. So in order to protect his business, he had to send his family ahead of him while he took care of things at home. So he sent his wife and his four kids ahead, his wife, Anne, his 11-year-old, Annie, 
his nine-year-old Maggie, their five-year-old Bessie, and their two-year-old Tanetta. And as they were going across the Atlantic Ocean in order to get to England on November 22nd, 1873, they were crossing the Atlantic, struck another ship, and the ship went down in the middle of the Atlantic. And in one night, Horatio Spafford had lost four of his children. Anne, his wife, had made it out. She got rescued, and she made it over to England. But at this time, Spafford didn't know how many people had survived. So he's waiting to hear from anybody who can tell him what's happened to his family. So Anne sends a telegram back to Chicago with only two words, saved alone. Spafford then boarded a boat to go and meet his wife in England. And as he did, they were going over the Atlantic at the very spot where just a couple months earlier that ship had gone down with his four daughters. And one of the captains of the ship knew that Spafford was on board. So he called Spafford to the front of the ship and said, this is the area where it happened. They stopped the ship and allowed him to sit there and contemplate. And as he was sitting there, the words came to him for his most famous hymn. Horatio Spafford wrote these words. You're probably familiar with the hymn, It Is Well. It was at this spot that he thought of these words, though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you with a covenant love, a love that saved you from the judgment that you deserve by sending my own son to shed his own blood for your soul, for your corruption. And when you look back at that, you will know my love, not by your circumstances, but you will look back and your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternal God, you're unchanging, which means your love for us is unchanging. It means that your love for us is unwavering. There is nothing, no sin. There is no corruption within us that can ever separate us from the covenant love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you that you so loved us, that you brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light to bring us into your great covenant love where we have been shielded and we have been saved from your very wrath and judgment that we deserve. God, please forgive us for the ways that we overlook this love, the ways that we look to our circumstances rather than what you have said, rather than what you have promised, rather than what you have done. And God, would you remind us that in Jesus Christ and in him alone, your wrath is satisfied and we can rejoice. And we can declare with Malachi, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. And we pray this all in the name of your beloved son, Jesus Christ. Amen.